If you want to produce a specific healthcare outcome, for example, a hemophilia patient not bleeding, an HIV patient receiving or reaching a certain viral load status, for example, or a cancer patient reaching a complete pathological response in early setting of breast cancer, for example. If you have a way to certify such an outcome, then it could basically send funds directly to that outcome. And through a smart contract, I could ensure that funds flow if a certain outcome is reached. And if a certain outcome is not reached, then there's a commercial discount or it's for free, whatever the agreement is. You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health podcast series from the Digital Health Council, where we aim to support healthcare innovation by disseminating knowledge of expert leaders at the Royal Society of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Marla Morkin. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so excited for this episode because today we're speaking with Martin, who's an internationally experienced healthcare CFO and general manager. Martin has over 25 years of industry experience in finance, pharmaceuticals and healthcare. And for the first time on this podcast, we're going to be able to talk about the linking between decentralized finance and healthcare outcomes in Web3. Martin is also an advisor for DHealth Foundation, which is a public permissionless blockchain foundation dedicated to the evolution of healthcare in the Web 3.0 era. All views expressed in this episode are of the speakers themselves. And if you enjoy listening to this episode, then head on down to the RSM website and sign up to some of our upcoming events. Enjoy! So Martin, I think it might be really helpful if you give a little bit of your background and experience to our, to our international listeners about how you've got into this space and how uh, you've become interested within Web3 as well in particular. Sure, a pleasure. I'd love to do so. So I am originally from Switzerland, but I've been working in the pharmaceutical and, and diagnostics industry for about 25 years almost. And most of that time was really spent in, in emerging markets. So almost 23 years, really. Uh, I started out in South Africa, for example, in the middle of the HIV and AIDS crisis. And then I, I moved uh, to other countries um, in China. I worked in, in Latin America for many years, in Colombia, Ecuador, Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, and later on. And then I had roles in uh, regional finance positions and and in the very end actually then I had a position as well in Ukraine and and, uh, of course if you come from a Swiss environment perhaps where everything is very organized and uh, very high levels of trust uh, at the beginning of course you get to appreciate as well that the the, the differences in in, let's say these institutional oversights levels of institutional oversights in countries like in sub-Saharan Africa and uh, what the difference it makes and uh, I mean, and sometimes it's very simple things that really strike a balance. So for example, if you buy a plot of land in, in Venezuela and uh, you want to build a house or a restaurant on it and whatever, and then a couple of years later, somebody comes and says, well, but the title you hold is not genuine or we can't prove that you really bought the land and now you have to buy it a second time. Then you get to realize how important it is that you have a, 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 a trustworthy counterpart, you know? And... Uh, and I think this is one of these uh, early examples as well, which uh, I, I noticed in, in my career. So when we were in, in South Africa, for example, and really it was all about HIV and AIDS, uh, and we were trying to help and build labs that could really do viral load um, monitoring uh, for the CD4 count, actually. 
Um, it, uh, but it was never about the money. Uh, you would always find the money somehow. I mean, actually, very often you have the, the impression that everybody wants to do something and there's a lot of goodwill and there's a lot of money around. But it was always this, this gap of trust, which was so hard to overcome. And how do you really have uh, a platform which allows you to really invest? And I think that was one of the early learnings that it's not about the money, it's about the trust. And that actually followed me uh, along. And then when I worked in Argentina and lived in Argentina, of course, as well, then you got to experience, let's say, the monetary side, uh, monetary policy side of this trust gap as well, where, of course, you know it, you read about it, but once you really live it and actually you get this sensation that, well, they're printing money whenever they want or need it. So the creation of money as a function of the political will and necessity and not the function of a, a economic activity, it, it really is damaging. And, and there again, it's, it's all a matter of trust. I mean, how can you trust the central entity, in that case, the central bank, to do a proper job or not? And I think that was, that was some of those uh, early uh, learnings. And it, it kept coming back. I mean, very recently in Ukraine, for example, where there was no proper uh, legislation that would really facilitate private healthcare insurance uh, because nobody forced insurance companies to offer contracts which extend to more than one year and nobody forced insurance companies to offer contracts for people 60 years and older. Uh, there was no right to be insured. And then you had young people who said, uh, who had a good income as they had money and they said, so why should I buy an insurance contract? Because I get sick in December and in January they tell me we don't renew you anymore because there was no trust, you know? And again, I think it's not the money. It's just always this, this matter of trust. I think that wow. was one of the- Wow, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that is so interesting that that, that that lack of trust within the actual patients to even seek out their own healthcare insurance because they didn't think it would be there if they did get sick. That is- Exactly. So the, the sensation was, well, this is like an umbrella which starts to leak the moment it starts to rain. So why would I put my money down in a health insurance policy, or uh, usually people put it down in other things. You don't think that you will ever get sick, of course. You know? But uh, in order to have a sustainable financing mechanism for private health insurance, for example, you need to have young people paying in so that you can spread the risk across the generations. So when you get sick, that there are funds you, you can use to pay out for, for treatments. And in that case, it didn't, it didn't work because of the lack of trust. So this is a fundamental learning and, and and it just kept coming back in all different shapes and forms throughout my career really and um yeah i think a, a couple of years ago then uh, i i stumbled more across this technology of the distributed ledger and um you you also start thinking okay now what could this do in healthcare i mean again once there's always a monetary policy side of things but once you understand that you have an immutable record which can be a contract which you can't mutate. And once you understand that uh, through a, a blockchain enabled payment system, for example, you can really send funds peer to peer without any party in between, then you start thinking, and I had one, it was a small episode. It sounds a bit silly because it was actually printed in the tabloid in Switzerland and they always have to be a bit careful what you can believe in there because it's a tabloid <laughs> after all. But one problem statement which was described was that schools in rural South Africa, they could not teach because the electricity bills and the water bills were not paid and it was simply dark in there. So the schools couldn't operate until uh, an engineer came up with an electricity meter, which basically allowed to, to send a, a, a Bitcoin or a crypto token 
straight to a light bulb basically if you hook up an electricity meter on an individual light bulb or an individual building you can send your funds directly to the recipient without having to send your money to a bank which hands it over to a charity which hands it over to another bank which hands it over to the power company and eventually if you're lucky some funds will end up at that school so they can turn on the lights and they can teach now now you have the possibility you can send it straight uh, actually really peer-to-peer -peer. and then of course the question immediately came well hang on I mean if you can send it to a light bulb what, what if you can swap out the light bulb and say now we instead of a light bulb we use a specific patient outcome if you want to produce a specific healthcare outcome for example a hemophilia patient not bleeding an HIV patient receiving or reaching a certain viral load status, for example, or a cancer patient reaching a complete pathological response in early setting of breast cancer, for example. If you have a way to certify such an outcome, then it could basically send funds directly to that outcome. And through a smart contract, I could ensure that funds flow if a certain outcome is reached. And if a certain outcome is not reached, then there's a commercial discount or it's for free, whatever the agreement is. But that was the that was the initial inspiration as well, because I think let's not forget as well that there is a, a, science is making fantastic progress as well, and uh, you have more and more treatments which are at the very individualized level now to the point that they are manufactured individually. You know, I mean, if you look at gene therapies or personalized cancer vaccines, which which will now come to the market, they are manufactured. For you, for me, for John, for, for Abby, I mean, they're not batch manufactured anymore. So that, that you tend to lose economies of scales. It's a very high value. And you need to find a way that you can still find a landing place for, for market access. And th these treatments are all great if they work, but if they don't really work or the, the effect is not as intended, then the value proposition in the real world setting becomes very, very different. And of course, you always have a small subset of patients which you use to produce a clinical trial and to produce a statistically significant result. And with that, you get the, the drug registered and approved. But if you then walk up to a payer, it becomes more and more difficult to really prove the value of the drug uh, in the real world setting. And they have to take a decision. So again, you need a way that you can actually link funds directly to specific outcomes. And I think you need a way as well, which allows you to include real world patient outcomes and patient data into this business model in a way, and I think this is the other aspect which I think really drew me to this whole uh, technology as well, in a way which ensures that the patients don't lose the sovereignty over their data. And I think this is a big difference as well, because I mean, if you think of it, the way the big data business model works. You know, if I sit into my car in the morning, my phone usually knows where I'm driving because they keep tracking all your, your geolocation data, et cetera, all of that. They keep tracking your interests and then they tell you how long it takes you to the point where you usually drive on a Saturday morning and then they send you the advertisement. You know? And you're, you might be slightly annoyed about the fact that they know all these things about you because you give them all your data for free. I mean, when you accept the app on Google, basically that's what you do. And there's like a unilateral extraction of this value and they sell it back to you in the form of advertisement. But when you think of it, do I really want to have this in, in, with my healthcare data? That I just give my healthcare data all up for free and they, they just get to analyze whatever it is and I have no idea, no control where it flows. 
I don't feel comfortable with that, honestly. And I think there should be a different way. And, and again, the, the blockchain technology, I believe enables patients to actually be much more in control of their own data because again, encryption or read write uh, rights for data access can be again put on a, on a distributed ledger. And either there's a consensus on who gets to see and who gets to release a certain data record, or there's not, but it's not this unilateral exploitation uh, of, the, of the data as well with a central entity, which you have to trust. So there's a number of aspects that really drew me into that. And I think healthcare has a lot of data, which is really driving the value, and, but we need to find a way that we can really empower patients, safeguard the data sovereignty, and then make use of all the data to, to, to produce market access mechanisms, which really allow for, for the innovation to continue to flow uh, in a way which is financially sustainable as well. I mean, I'm blown away. I, I mean, I think you have summed that up so incredibly well for the listeners to understand that journey of where you've got there. Just to take a step back, you spoke about, um, and, I th- and I think I understand this correctly, you spoke about how we can kind of cut the middleman out and we can, we can make sure that money flows from A to Z without having to go through B, C, D, E, or et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, what happens right now in healthcare? And like, so like, where is that change actually happening to? Um, do you mind just explaining that a bit more about kind of the behind the scenes of how the money moves right now? Yeah, there's different types of systems, of course. I mean, if you if you are in a market where it's a publicly administered system, then typically what happens is that if the system is well defined, you pay a percentage over your salary, your employer pays a percentage over your salary, and that goes into a publicly administered um, healthcare fund or solidarity fund, for example. Um, um, and, and then it's the administrator who decides how to distribute this money then to the providers of healthcare services again. But essentially, again, you depend on a on an individual entity that that distributes the money, and you have to trust that the money is is not misappropriated. That's that's one way. If you are in a market where you have private healthcare insurance, of course, similar uh, concept. You basically you pay an insurance premium. It all goes into one big pot, and then the insurance company has a policy that decides how the money is being distributed. You know which kind of services are covered, and they 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 take care of the distribution. Again, you have to then trust the, the private healthcare insurance company to, to uh, not misappropriate, to make proper use of those funds. It's always the central piece that there's a central entity in between which you have to trust. I think that's the common system which, which works right now. There's different policies, of course, how the decisions are made, what is being paid for, whether it's a model where you have to fee for service, where uh, doctors or healthcare service providers can provide the services and just get the reimbursement. And the more services they produce, the more money they get out of the fund. Uh, there are other uh, schemes where, uh, the, 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 let's say, the, the administrator says, no, we just pay for this treatment and for that treatment. And uh, there's like a flat fee. Let's say an appendicitis, uh, you get 100 bucks. For uh, uh, a bilirubin uh, treatment, you get 200 bucks for a cesarean and so on, you know, there's like a, a capitation fee. There's different models there as well. Uh, but essentially it's always, you pay, you take contributions from funders, uh, you put it into one big pot and the administrator decides how to distribute these funds 
to uh, the recipients and the, the providers of healthcare services. That's what currently really happens. And then so moving into, okay, so right now we have the centralized system where health goes into one, money goes into one pot and then it's decided from a central body how it's distributed for healthcare right now. Now, what you're saying is that we're going to move into a time period, hopefully, where patients retain their own data and they are only, is it, is it right in me saying they're only paying up for what they actually get treated for? How, how does it actually, does, or does it change for the patient? Does the experience change or is it more for the, for the central body? Like, will we see any difference? I think there's a number of differences you could see. So first of all, um, I think there's one important concept which you introduce, which is this so-called notion of programmable money. You know, it, and the programmable money can be in the form of stable coins, uh, or they can be in the future as well. Many countries are working on central bank digital currencies, basically, where somebody in, in the most simple form explained that to me. It's like Christmas money, which you give to your kid, and he said, but you can only spend it on your birthday for this and not on that. You know, so it's money with electronic strings <laughs> attached to it. You know, I have to think of it in that way, because again, there's a smart contract behind it that, that governs how this liquidity can flow. <clears throat> and I think that offers lots of opportunities because first of all, you can automate certain payments and you can cut out a lot of administrative and overhead costs as well in the way you process payments and settlements, for example. That's one thing which is interesting and a number of industries are looking at that as well. The other thing is, of course, you can uh, now then also control for what the money is being spent. Saying, for example, again, uh, if you take a hemophilia patient uh, and you want to extend them the benefit of a gene therapy, for example, which is a very high value treatment, it's totally justified if the, the, you can really cure a five-year-old boy, for example, from hemophilia for the rest of his life. Um, the, the question is a bit different if the, the, the curative effect veins or, or doesn't really materialize the way you think, but it's a very high value treatment. But at the end of the day, what you want to produce is not delivery of the treatment, you want to produce the fact that that patient does not bleed. Yeah. I love and that. I love that so much. Just let's pause on that point there just there, because that is exactly what everyone hopes for from healthcare, right? They don't just want the delivery of the treatment, they want the outcome that they were promised. And this is capturing that. Exactly. And if you have a way that you can, let's say, certify that patient record and say, all right, um, instead of giving you the, the, the infusion and I send you a, a bill, an invoice for an infusion, I can say, I just keep reading your, your, the, the patient record and the outcome. And for as long as that patient does not bleed, there is like, like in a mortgage, like a subscription fee until a certain limit is reached, again, whatever the commercial agreement is. But if we see that the, the outcome is not achieved then there, there's a risk sharing agreement behind it as well, either a price reduction and all these kind of things, um, uh, become possible through the technology as well, that you can really link capital directly to an outcome. I'm no longer selling you an infusion or a box or a vial. I am selling you a synthetic product, which means John does not bleed in August, for example. It's a, it's a different notion, of course. And this is the type of thing which I think is attractive for both payers, but also for patients, because then you have an incentive to actually invest in healthcare as well, because you know there's a certain outcome guaranteed to that, which you can assure through through smart contract. 
Uh, I think there's another aspect to that. If you, of course, if let's take the case of Ukraine, where these youngsters saying, uh, I'm not interested in buying healthcare insurance because these insurance companies, they will not pay me when I get sick. Mm -hmm. well, if you can link programmable money to a smart contract, which tells you, all right, um, it flows when I receive a certain healthcare outcome. And if I don't, the, the liquidity does not flow away. I, first of all, I can even earn a passive income by locking my cryptos, uh, my stable coins or CDBCs into, into such a smart contract. But I also know that the money is there. It's just not going anywhere. It's not going for the construction of roads or what it typically does. No, I, it's, it's there and I, and, I, and I have certain control over it without a central entity just taking the decision to do whatever. So it, it offers lots of opportunities to really fund, finance, and pay for healthcare outcomes in a different way. And and who, I, I want to get on to D-Health as well, but like who, just, just on this last, who is currently going to be validating that? I mean, how someone has to validate the information that goes onto the blockchain, right? Yes. Uh, what you typically would want to have is you, you need an independent verifier of an outcome. And we, in, we, in, in, in the industry, we talk about oracles, you know? So it, it can't be the same party who puts down the money, uh, makes the contract, and verifies the outcomes. So you want to have an independent verifier. And there are actually companies who are now specializing in that to uh, offer platforms that capture outcome-based agreements that capture all the right treatment parameters. If you make such an outcome-based agreement, for example, and you, you make an agreement that I pay you if a certain outcome happens, you wanna make sure that the patient gets properly treated as well, because if the outcome does not materialize because the dosage was wrong or that they picked the wrong patient or the, the, the sequence was not right, then, then of course you don't wanna have that. So they capture all of that and they certify outcomes. That's a third party independent Oracle which you need for that. And think of it, of course, as well, this can be in complex cases, an Oracle can be a third-party platform, but in, in other healthcare outcomes, which you might want to achieve, it can also become a variable device. You know, if the healthcare outcome which you want to achieve is a certain heart rate or blood pressure or glucose measuring, all these kind of things, uh, it, it's possible that you can think of, of a variable also just to feed the data in. I mean, to verify what is your what is your outcome? This is the heart rate, this is the blood pressure you have, and that becomes an independent verifier then as well. But that's important that you have an independent third party verifying a certain outcome. Okay, I I think I'm with you here. This is so mind blowing. I've actually just written down about three pages of notes whilst you've been talking. So this is I'm gonna have to pick your brain on this after the call as well. So interesting. Let's talk about D Health because that's actually one of the first things we connected on as well um, yeah. was about this layer one protocol that you are building within the healthcare industry and advising for. Um, this is really exciting. I mean, you've brought together some of the leading people in the space, pharma, industry, healthcare, et cetera, <clears throat> finance as well. And are you able to explain probably a lot better than I am um, how, how it came about and I mean, what what is what is the D Health Foundation doing right now? Yeah, so very briefly, how it came about that was still when I was at my corporate job, a really very reputable uh, Swiss uh, pharmaceutical company, and we really started to think about okay, what what are possible applications in the healthcare space? And then one thing we came up with uh, back in 2019 actually said, okay, let's take some senior business leaders. Um, 
really fairly senior in the group and just lock them up in a room with a number of startups and then think, well, see what they come up with. That was basically the concept of a, a, a two and a half day incubator, which we did in Zug in Switzerland, where is this so-called Crypto Valley Lab. And uh, so and one of the, the startups that was present there was the D-House Foundation, which back then had a different name, but they were part of that as well. So that's where the initial contact came up with. And uh, what the D-House Foundation essentially does is so they, they, they create the digital ecosystem and they uh, launch their own blockchain as a fork of a proof of stake blockchain, which exists with the, with the, the purpose really to, to provide basic infrastructure for healthcare dedicated applications. And I want to accumulate people with healthcare minded interests as well uh, on blockchains. Uh, and that was the origin, uh, the origin of, of the health. Very briefly, perhaps, uh, you know, in blockchains, there's these two different types of consensus mechanism, proof of work and proof of stake. Um, obviously the, the biggest and important, most important one proof of work is, is Bitcoin, which has this, this very, very high degree of security behind it. However, there's always scalability issues and it can be expensive and it can be slow, which is why essentially the proof of stake consensus mechanism was introduced, which makes it a lot faster and a lot cheaper to process transactions. Uh, and so in our case, this was a, a fork of, a, of an existing blockchain proof of stake. So it's inherently very fast and, and, and also the transaction costs are low. And the foundation operates this blockchain and they offer a, a, a number of core uh, software infrastructure components. So for example, you have your own token, which you can use to make peer-to-peer -peer transactions, which runs on this blockchain. You have wallet functions there, which allow you, for example, if you want to build, uh, just an example, a so-called patient support program, and you want to enable patients to pay for services or to, to uh, check out the discount in a pharmacy, um, with a crypto token, they can receive such a token into their wallet, walk into a pharmacy and pay with their tokens, basically. And you as the, the provider of these services, the founder of the services, you can settle in the background uh, with, with the token. Um, so there's a wallet function in there. And then essentially the, the foundation also, as a strategic priority said, we'd like to focus on three core components. One is decentralized patient identity solutions. Again, this whole story that allows patients to remain in, in, in charge and to keep the sovereignty over, over their data. Decentralized data storage solutions as well for patient records. So that's perhaps another topic which we could open and expand a bit more and payment solutions. So these are the, the core functionality uh, components which uh, the DHealth uh, solution provides. And it's really a bit like Lego blocks, you know, now you can start putting them on top of each other and then integrating them and see what kind of solutions you can come up with. One is uh, the one uh, I'm looking into personally now is really, can you tokenize healthcare outcomes and link them to DeFi protocols, liquidity pools, so that you can have this direct link between capital and healthcare outcomes. But there's other things, of course, which you can do as well. And we experimented back then in 2019 and when the pandemic started as well, with things like, can you certify COVID test results, for example, also on a blockchain so that you can use it to produce a passport on top of it. And this is really different, different applications. So that's what essentially the DHS Foundation provides is this ecosystem and this core technology software 
um, infrastructure platform. How fantastic. <clears throat> okay, so if I was a healthcare professional listening and I'm so blown away by all of this and I'm really excited to get involved and learn more, what would you recommend they do? I mean, is there events that they could come down to? Any kind of talks that they could listen into from, from the D-Health work that you're doing at all? There, there are events. I mean, uh, actually, as it happens, uh, we have one coming up very briefly, uh, shortly in, in Zug in Switzerland on the 22nd of June. That's at the Crypto Valley Labs, where there's a community gathering where we, we talk about uh, the, the, the roadmap and the different uh, components. And we have external parties also coming in, uh, talking about how they intend to use it. Mind you, this is, again, a, a public blockchain. You know, I mean, anybody can just go there and develop their own things. On top of it, you don't need to have permission from anybody. So it's important that you, you open it up and, and this is happening. There's, of course, a VR on um, on Twitter spaces and, and you, you you can find about that. And that, that's one way to connect with the D-Health uh, ecosystem. Uh, just look us up and you can install your wallet and um, and, and get going. So that's that's one way. But I think the, the other uh, avenue is, is, of course, it's, it's always important that you have a particular use case and utility case in mind. And I think that's at the end of the day, what you would like to, to drive. And maybe just let me open up a little parenthesis here. I mean, you know, there's a lot of hype about blockchain and a lot of people are uh, speculating and, and sometimes it goes horribly wrong, like just very recently with this big stablecoin meltdown. I think what you really want to focus on the long-term is, is real world utility. This should not just become uh, another speculative financial marketplace, but really real world utility on the basis of immutable records, patient data sovereignty in our case. I think that's a very important thing. Really automated payment transactions, the way that we can tokenize healthcare outcomes. These are the kind of things that, that we look at. And if you have a particular idea where you think you have, again, and I'm going back to the very beginning, where you have this, this gap of trust which you somehow must overcome. And if you have a way to come up with an immutable record that really would help you either in a smart contract, uh, which you can tokenize, um, then I think you have, then you have something which it's worthwhile to look at whether it, it, it's, it's, it's a good idea to put that on a blockchain. Not everything, and I think this is also sometimes a bit the hype, not everything is a blockchain problem, you know. Not everything is, is uh, suitable to be to being solved on a blockchain. Sometimes it's just an overkill. But I think if you can say yes, it's it's a trust issue. Uh, immutable records would help if you can tokenize something. And there's a certain number of criteria which help you to decide as well. Then I think it's a good point to to check this out. Yeah. I love that. Not everything is a blockchain problem. I think that's <laughs> such a good point as well. <laughs> Is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with today? Any kind of things to look out for or anything you're excited about in this space at all? Well, what I'm excited about really is just to see the, the, the adoption level, utility, and that you see that there's more and more people coming in and it, not, it, it moves away from this purely speculative thing. It's still there, of course, but you see more and more institutional investors also coming in. Uh, and the healthcare and pharma perhaps was a bit slower, but I mean, we did have some success to, to actually convince some big top-notch uh, pharmaceutical companies to become node operators as well. I know that inside these organizations, people are looking at 
ways to 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 uh, to apply the technology as well, whether it's in 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 supply chain, for example, whereas clearly in other cases as well, where it's very important to have immutable records about where your product has been, for example, temperature checks, all of that. Is my product which I receive as a patient, is that genuine or not? How can I trust it? You know, if somebody tells me this is an original box, how can I trust? Uh, how can I verify myself? And more and more people are, are looking at these applications, are opening up their minds to it, and they don't just think Bitcoin, you know, oh, it's very volatile, it's very speculative, but they really think in real world utility. And I think that's the thing that gets me excited because it's about in the real world, breaching these gaps of trust, which we have in so many cases. Sometimes we're not even aware of that. You just always have to place your trust in, in somebody saying, yes, it's like this, or yes, it's like that. And uh, sometimes you can, and sometimes you cannot. And there's a lot happening, and I think people are becoming more and more uh, open to, to the adoption of it, and that's exciting. You're completely right. You're completely right. Thank you so much. Honestly, this has been such a brilliant podcast episode. And when you're down in London next, you will have to come and join us at the Royal Society of Medicine as well. We'd love to have you down at some of our upcoming events. So um, thank you very much. Love to, yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode with Martin. It was phenomenal to hear about his experience and where he sees healthcare in Web 3.0 going. If you'd like to learn more about Martin or the RSM in general or some of the work that we've mentioned in today's episode, then I've put all the links in the episode description. If you were interested by this episode, we'd love to see you down at some of the RSM events that are upcoming and you can find all the information on the RSM website. Bye for now.